ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, it is Tuesday, March 19th. You are listening to the Cheats Movement on WRIR. Gigi Broadway is here. Gigi, how you feeling? I'm, I'm good. I'm tired, but I'm good. You recovered from the weekend? I did. St. Patrick's Day, Shamrock the Block, all of that stuff. How did that, how did all of that impact your weekend? Well, um... Of course, traffic was crazy. I actually went to a rap battle um, <laughs> Saturday evening, and boy, where the they were, boy, were they shamrocking the block all the way up until like almost midnight. Well, if you know anything about me, and or if you listen to the Halloween episode uh, <laughs> of this of this program, you'd realize that I really despise holidays that have no purpose besides adult people drinking way too much and acting like they're not adults. <laughs> Therefore, I feel like the adults ruin these holidays for children. Of course. And the two holidays that they ruin the most is Halloween and St. Patrick's Day. Call me a Scrooge. Cameron was wearing green all week. He was looking he was setting traps for leprechauns. He was having a ball. He deserved that. Nice. You don't deserve <laughs> Saturday night in Scott's edition outside of a brewery. You know, losing your mind. It just doesn't... It, I don't need that. I seen, like, guys with bloody noses. <laughs> like, <laughs> what was point, wicked. What point are we trying to serve here? <laughs> I don't need that part of St. Patrick's Day. Nah. But nah. overall, good weekend, Gigi Broadway. Yeah, man, yeah. Um, I binge-watched Game of Thrones in preparation for the new season coming out April. <laughs> it's real, man. It's, it's real in the film. That is crazy. Well, without further ado, we have a huge, huge show this week uh, we you know i had the opportunity to sit down with the commonwealth attorney of the city of richmond michael herring Ooh. and so that we got into a lot of topics in regards to his job his outlook on criminal justice a report that they just put out that they want to work with other agencies and work with the community about so it's a it's a amazing interview it's it's pretty lengthy we're going to get into that with Commonwealth Attorney Michael Herring. It's also Women's History Month still, the month of March. It so is. So we're going to get into our Women History Heroes. We got some great feedback from our listeners, and you guys said that you want more Ask the Cheats movement, so we put one in. We don't have a lot of time this episode, <laughs> but we put one in for the end of the episode that I think we'll try our best to, to get into without time getting cut off. See how well we implement feedback? You know, we're going we're gonna to try to do it. So... Before we get into every everything, it is Women's History Month, so therefore we had to change our theme song. Last week it was Ladies Night, and this week it is Ladies First by Queen Latifah. This is the Chiefs Movement on WRIR. We're going to have a great episode for you. Let's go. Gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Gigi Broadway is here. This is the Cheats Movement on WRIR. That was Ladies First. Queen Latifah dropped in. Man, it's gone by real fast, hasn't it? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know if it's gone by faster than Black History Month. Of course but it is. But I feel like <laughs> Women's History Month is gone. <laughs> Black History Month was the shortest month of the year. So I don't know if it, got, it went by as quick, quite as fast. 
Again, we don't want to revisit, but that was a long It was month. a long 28 days. So, before we go too far into this episode, again, we've got uh, Michael Herring, the Commonwealth Attorney of the City of Richmond, coming up for our interview. We've got to jump into our opening segment, which is Women History Heroes, Gigi Broadway, because we don't want the show to be all negative. <laughs> right? We, not, we no. want uplifting, positive things. So let's get to this part first before before we, you know, <laughs> take a downward spiral. Tell us who your women history hero is for this episode. Well, I picked um, Ada Lovelace. Now, she is a was a gifted mathematician, and she was actually considered to be the first computer programmer. Not the first woman programmer, the first computer programmer of either gender um so she transformed business she transformed our lives she transformed the world especially in a male-dominated industry it, everything that you do you have to touch a computer computers rule the world now let's be honest so <laughs> oh this is a whole nother thing now i know it, oh this is another rabbit hole well, but let I mean, me ask you let me ask you this when was she so we know the time frame when was she the first computer programmer well, um, she was born in 1815 until uh, 1852. Speaking of women who have dominated a male-led industry, my woman hero for this month is Robin Renee Roberts, a.k.a. Robin Roberts of Good Morning America. She has long been a hero of mine. She grew up in Mississippi, attended Southern Louisiana University, what I know her for is for 15 years, she was an anchor on ESPN um, from 1990 to 2005. She be then became the co-anchor of Good Morning America in 2005. And what people don't fully know, she's very open about it, but what she, people don't fully know is that Robin Roberts is a cancer survivor. Uh, she has authored a book, you know, and, and it was just a really motivational book and a really motivational person. For people that are fighting cancer, uh, she was also a 2012 Peabody Award winner. I am a huge fan, if you can't tell, Gigi Broadway, of all thing, all things Robin Roberts. I think she is, you know, in my mind, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in my mind, Robin could do no wrong. I'm a big, big, big fan of her. So I would like to recognize her as my woman history hero. Robin, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the Chiefs Movement on WRR. Feel free to come on the show. Please, and make Mark's life. That would make that would make my life. Robin Roberts coming on the show wouldn't make my life. So with that said, we'll be right back after this. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Cheats Movement on WRIR. This is our special feature interview of the week and is brought to you by Work and Friends. I was about to say our old sponsor, 804RVA, but it is converted to Work and Friends, one of the best co-working spots in Richmond. I am honored to have a first-time guest on the Cheats Movement, Commonwealth Attorney Michael Herring. He told me to call him Mike. I will be glad to do so. But I'll, I'll look, my habit, I'll say, Mr. Herring, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and let's let that be the last time you call me <laughs> Mr. Herring, so Mike works. No, I, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show, and we one of the reasons that we have you here, and we're also joined by a good friend of mine, Iman Shabazz, who works in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. Iman, how are you doing as well? Oh, doing great, brother, doing great. We're going to get into a document that was released in January 2019 called Beyond Containment. It is... Uh, an, uh, just a way to start dialogue and, and instigate dialogue amongst the community in regards to 
criminal justice and recidivism and reform and we're going to definitely talk about that one of the things i want to start with if you don't mind mike is because this is the first time you're on the show we want to get to know you a little bit in that sense and one of the things that was surprising to me believe it or not is a little bit of a lack understanding lack of understanding in regards to the role of the commonwealth attorney what you do how the office comes in place so give us the quick like shotgun scenario of your role as commonwealth attorney a role that you've held since january 2006 sure sure so the 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 simplest way to think of of our office is is this there are two principal lawyers who serve inside city government so to speak one is the commonwealth's attorney and that's me and then the other is the city attorney the commonwealth's attorney handles criminal matters the city attorney handles civil or transactional matters for the city so uh, in most states, the, com- the Commonwealth's attorney is referred to as the district attorney. But in Virginia, we are all elected Commonwealth's attorneys and we prosecute uh, people for various levels of offenses ranging from traffic court to capital murder. We often get confused for the attorney general, sure, absolutely. which is a statewide uh, office and the AG by and large doesn't really prosecute criminal cases nearly as much as it represents the Commonwealth primarily in transactional matters. Right. And in Virginia, obviously, we have a unique situation because you guys share the last same last name or similar last name. And similar first names, Mike and Mark Herring. But uh, that is true. So therefore, I think, you know, a lot of things in the last couple of months might have been confused in a, in a, in a for you, probably not so comical way. But at the same time, it's important to note that it is two different offices with two distinctly different functions. And, and this particular office, and, and just to be frank, I would say most people that are familiar with, you know, a district attorney's office or a commonwealth attorney's office um, are probably referring to television, right. right? Whether it's a legal drama or something of that nature. Right. And they kind of, kind of think that it may be that dramatic. It may be some days, but uh, how many like how many lawyers would you say is on hand in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office in the city of Richmond, uh, and how do you go about kind of shepherding that that operation? So, including me, there are 39 lawyers in the office and 30 non-lawyers, uh, and we also have victim witness uh, members who assist with the handling and. Uh, assistance for victims and witnesses, thus the title victim witness. The prosecutors are spread out among general district court, traffic court, and juvenile and domestic relations. And again, our focus is the prosecution of criminal cases. In juvenile court, the uh, mission of the office is to uh, prosecute cases involving juveniles, try to achieve outcomes that work toward the rehabilitation of the juvenile offender, so to speak. Now, by contrast, in the adult system, we prosecute cases involving adult offenders. The focus is not so much rehabilitation. It is determining whether the offender is guilty or innocent, then arriving at the right outcome. Sometimes we achieve some degree of of rehab or assistance, but by and large, in the adult criminal justice system, the outdoor is punishment. Well, let's talk about that because criminal justice reform in general is a real buzzword topic right now in culture. Like, 
you know everyone from jay-z to you know the the documentary that that garnered an academy award nomination from uh 13th to, to all kinds of so so criminal justice even to the federal legislation that was just passed not too long ago uh, there there's just been this kind of uh awareness in the culture or advocacy for criminal justice reform some of that reform if you if you accept this premise you tell me is that you know americans criminal justice system especially for when you're talking about the adult in is pretty much broken um talk to me about just that concept in general and your belief and what you see every day in richmond do you believe that kind of the american criminal justice system as we've seen it now and seen it play out is it broken that needs to be fixed in that way or is it a system that just needs to be changed i definitely think the system needs to be changed to, to say it's broken uh would be too much of an oversimplification for me any system that wrongfully convicts innocent people is broken any system that imposes draconian punishments is broken so whenever you have those things happening they illustrate examples of dysfunction in our system. But I don't think you throw out the baby with the bathwater. In many jurisdictions, the criminal justice system achieves the goal of holding people accountable. And then in jurisdictions that have turned the corner, uh, government has allocated resources to achieve sentences and dispositions that address the cause for the behavior and not just incapacitate the offender. So for me, the, the, the discourse in criminal justice really shouldn't distill to, is the system broken or not? It should be, does our system function optimally? And the answer to that is a resounding no. And you bring up a good point that actually brings us to the Beyond Containment docu uh, document, the report that was released uh, in January because you're bringing up factors, right? That these, these very key components in our society that, that ultimately has a effect and probably a negative effect on the criminal justice system, right? Let me before, the one question I will ask before we get right, right into the nuts and bolts of Beyond Containment is being in office since 2006, what would you say when we're talking about Richmond City specifically, what has changed the most in, in your kind of role as a prosecutor? What have, what have you seen What would that, that you would say, man, in 2019, that's way different from what it was in 2009? The uh, level of cooperation from the community has gone down significantly and had a whole lot to do with my interest in this project. And we'll take that up at some point. At some point. So, you know, Richmond is certainly certainly doesn't uh, earn the labels that it did years ago as being one of the most violent mid-tier cities because it, I don't think it is. But Richmond also regularly suffers, let's say, a, a baseline degree of violence that most people would consider unacceptable, right? The use of guns has gone up, or better yet, the unpredictable, random nonsensical use of a weapon has gone up. Oddly enough, it made sense to us years ago when we could attribute or associate gun usage with the drug markets. Now, people will use guns for no reason whatsoever, which makes it virtually impossible to suppress or police. 
That is that is interesting, and I I wouldn't have thought of it the way that you framed it. One of the things I remember, obviously growing up, uh, growing up in in around the region, uh, mostly in Henrico County, but one of the things that especially when you talk about firearms that Richmond Iris remember was the, the, the trafficking, right? The running, whether it was just because the access to guns in the South are a little bit easy, especially in Virginia is extremely easier than it would have been in the Northeast. I just remember that always being a, a thing that lend in the back of our mind about we need to stop, you know, the straw purchasing of weapons in Virginia and running them up. Well, what I'm hearing from you is that the use, the actual use of their weapons would, you know, is just kind of proliferated. Is that is that right? That's exactly right. Uh, pr- proliferated to the point that if it's not an annual crisis, then it is certainly a uh, biannual crisis. Right. And we can never quite figure out the, the true uh, cause for it or the real catalyst for the, the upticks in, in gun violence. Let's talk about the report Beyond Containment. It kind of starts with a with a question of why do people offend? And to your credit, your team went out and did over, I guess, two dozen dialogues? Yes. Um, and the report seems to end with quite a few questions as well. So the report kind of started with a question of why do people offend? You guys went out and had a bunch of community dialogues and kind of you know ignited um, parameters around the discussion. But when you're reading the report, or when you're reading the report, it seems to put in some very key factors, and then it actually adds a lot more questions. So I'm going to ask Iman. Iman, what was the goal uh, with the project and presenting it so far at this point in the manner that you have? Indeed. So. To start from the point which you kind of indicated where we went out into the community, one of the things that we really wanted to do was to make sure that, and I'll put it in this kind of context, that the community's uh, voice in regards to their own experiences was really in the forefront of our attempt to try to, I'll say loosely, compel some of our colleagues uh, throughout the city to really be able to understand what might be happening at the level of uh, decision you know a criminal decision being made and we wanted to make sure that we were incorporating real experiences uh, real responses if you will um, in a context that that really uh, pulled out stories and ideas and information from the folks who were most impacted so when we went out into the community uh, the aim was to really be able to get as candid as we could uh, a, a, a collaborative excuse me a collective response uh, to some of the things that people thought around this idea of what might be driving crime um, to then take that information uh, for other purposes package it in a way that we could present it to some of our colleagues who we know are in different spaces that intersect with some of the things that we raise in the paper um, to really give people at least a springboard to start discussing that and say well okay this is what the community is sharing that this is their experience. These are the things that many of us either already know through our own research or that we've had some sense of um, exposure to in terms of our understanding of what the social connections are in relationship to the things that might be having an impact on this, to to use Mike's term, uptick in, in the crime that we see. And then let's create the space that we can have an honest dialogue about that and then start figuring out what we agree on and then hopefully identify those things with which we can actually kind of go back into our individual shops and figure out well what is it that we can do what can we produce what can we affect 
in, order, in terms of developing longer term strategies as opposed to what Mike was alluding to, um, the way that we currently uh, handle dealing with crime in just a punitive context. And let's break down some of those factors that the community came up with that ultimately landed uh, in the report. There's trauma, there's poverty, housing, education, race, health, law enforcement, even social media, which is a fairly new section, right? How did you guys come up with those types? Now, were those factors that came up from the Commonwealth Attorney's Office or was, did that come directly from the community? So I, I, I would have to argue it, it's a combination of things. We definitely looked at the uh, data that we received in terms of the community stories and really looked at those things that we kind of highlighted, if you will, in terms of what people shared in their experience. Ultimately, what we wanted to do nonetheless was really figure out how do we, in the best way possible, kind of encapsulate that experience and encapsulate some of those ideas in a way that would register with both our colleagues in the what I would consider to, to go back to the term earlier, um, our stakeholders who we know have the um, ability to impact certain areas that intersect with criminal justice, but then also to frame it in a way that we can again identify things that we can actually do something about. So there was a much broader conversation, of course, that occurred. And there was, a, if you can imagine, there was a, a wide array of things that were certainly shared by the community. So I just want to be clear that this in no way is the sum total right, of all like the be all it's right. just some of the top line things that we bought out right um, but we, 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 we looked at those things in combination with some of our own dialogue you know literally you know, Mike and I kind of sat and we and discussed some of these things just to in terms of our own understanding and we extracted these things because they were the things that kind of came up the most or resonated the most at least in in much of our dialogue and the, some of the things that we heard and and for me they they resonated, if you will, or appeared more frequently in cases, right? So I've spent almost equal times in criminal practice, in prosecution and defense, and, and many of the factors that, that we address as uh, criminogenic uh, or contributing factors for crime are very common in the cases that we see in the courthouse. Was there anything that you kind of saw that was like, well, huh? That that's not not newer, but it's just it seems to be on top of mind more than other things. Right. For me, it was illuminating that the criminal decision point may be anything but that. Decision connotes control, uh, will, uh, leverage, and a lot of the people that we talk to in the focus groups, and a lot of the people that I observe in the cases behave not so much as a result of will determination or leverage it sometimes is momentum which is the product of circumstance um, and so it forced me to consider the dynamic of a criminal act through the eyes of a person who has been living in abject poverty or who had undergone significant trauma as a young person or as an adult, or whose health is always on the margin. For that person, the criminal act, which appears to be a criminal decision, is not that much of a leap. Sure, and so I, I, for full disclosure, I have, a, I have a social work background myself, and one of the things that comes up in, in practice all the time is what we call it kind of blaming the victim. 
mm-hmm. right? So uh, from the outside in, you can you can see a person that offended, and you might want to say, well, this person needs to be brought to justice per se, not taking into account all of the other factors that you guys bring up in this report that may have led to a, a decision. With such a large office, especially with 39 other lawyers and so forth, how do you foster a, a culture of having your team understand that, hey, may, it may be a bigger scope than just this person, which is obviously, you guys, are, everyone across this is overworked and underpaid, and you hear the stories about, you know, just, you know, not a lot of interaction and, and law enforcement and so forth. How do you foster uh, uh, an environment in which your prosecutors look at this and say, hey, there may be a bigger picture to it? to certain certain crimes or certain offenses or certain decisions yeah that, that that's an excellent question and I, I'll give you my perspective and I'll invite Amon to do the same as a non-lawyer maybe even an outsider so to speak uh, changing the culture of an office of prosecutors is hard because you need people to be sharp um, you need to be, you need them to be able to think critically Sometimes you need them to have empathy. Sometimes you need them to have compassion. But the criminal justice system is fundamentally adverse. So I need our prosecutors to go upstairs into courtrooms ready, willing, and able to try cases as aggressively but ethically as necessary. By the same token, I need our prosecutors to be able to consider where the offenders come from. We don't have anything about offender background in police reports. I think we suggest in, in Beyond Containment that we don't actually learn anything about the offender until sentencing. Right? Correct. By that, then, that is in the, that's in the report. Yeah, and, most people, new, yeah, yeah. and most people in the general public think we know much more on the front end than we actually do. So part of the culture change that I'm trying to instill here is to get people to be open to the idea that or, or just get people willing to suspend judgment of the offender until we know more about them or to avoid um, certain generalizations about accountability and choice when we decide how and what to prosecute. But that is a work in progress, changing the culture of the office. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot that you really have to consider. I mean, I think that it's it's an absolutely layered um thing to attempt to try to do on the one hand it's 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 absolutely what mike just described and you make for lack of a better term what i would kind of summarize as that type of incremental change if you will um or 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 subtly introduce the idea so that uh you know we're not necessarily trying to mandate that everyone has to have uh, some sense of randomly um imposed groupthink but to be clear that this is the direction that we want to make sure that people at least consider where we have not done in the past um Outside of that, I think that the other layer that that it, it's challenging because I think that the other layer happens outside of this office. So on the one hand, it's you know decisions that are made in relationship to the office, but then it's also well, what happens in concert with everyone else who is a part of the system that is, I guess, accustomed, so to speak, to um, handling cases in a very particular way. Uh, what we 
are hoping to do especially from what we kind of introduce in the paper is to open up the dialogue so that all of those folks are that are part and that play a role are engaging in a way so that they understand that this is not just an initiative that for our other purposes we're attempting to kind of steamroll from our office's perspective but really that we want to try to I guess engage or work collectively uh, in the context of, of again uh, those who have the ability to make decisions that really will impact um, both the, the outcomes, if you will, of cases. And then in turn, what happens when this person is either, re either returns to the community or if, you know, for all other purposes, their sentence is one where they are released to the community, what happens with them so that we can try to prevent them from coming back into the courthouse doors in the first place? But no, that's a good point. And there's two particular, three actually, but two particular kind of relationships with agencies I want to ask you guys about um, because from what I'm hearing that it's not something where the Commonwealth Attorney's Office as a whole unit can necessarily lead they can lead some of the charge but that charge has to be in accord with other agencies so two of the ones I'd really definitely want to um, ask you about the first one being the Office of Community Wealth Building when I read the report some of the principles that we're applying in the report, especially around poverty and housing uh, and economics in regards to job creation and job retainment, seem to fall right in the wheelhouse of the charge that was created when the Office of Community Wealth Building was, was built. Is that a relationship that the Commonwealth Attorney's Office has now, or is that something that we'll, we'll have to work towards? I think we, we do have a relationship with the Office of Community Wealth Building, and when we were really steeped in the work of the paper, the then director of that office, Reggie Gordon, was often at the table for many of the conversations, certainly the planning conversations. Uh, you know, obviously, there, there, there's several vectors, I like to use the term vectors, just to connote leverage right that that really come into play on criminal justice and outside the courthouse community wealth building social services uh, VCU health system police department are the primary ones and and RPS but it would be disingenuous for me to say that we really are taking um, cues from the office community wealth building in how we prosecute and i know that's not quite your, your, yeah, your point yep. but I, I do think that much of what we tee up for the community to discuss in the form of questions does land in the lap of community wealth building the court system isn't going to restructure wealth in, in communities no. it's not going to revitalize the communities right i understand not at all not at all right and so we the, the city ultimately will rely on that office to to take these issues up and and you know cover some traction or some yardage with them so the the other uh, the other agency, there's two others, but the other agency I have to ask about, and obviously you guys were uh, thrusted into center stage last year following a police-involved shooting death yeah. of Marcus David Peters, yeah. a death that left a lot of people in the Richmond community, I would say, unsettled yeah. or distraught at worst, but definitely concerned. Yeah. In regards to the office of the Commonwealth Attorney and your role as Commonwealth Attorney of Richmond, 
What what is that relationship with the Richmond Police Department? Uh, what do you feel it needs to be? Obviously, it varies from state to state, from city to city. But in your role, that's been here for such a long time, and obviously, you've probably outlasted. I'm trying to think in my head quickly. Uh, four police chiefs, and we're looking for another. What is the relationship that the Commonwealth Attorney's Office has with Richmond law enforcement, and what should it be in your eyes? Good question again. I, I would say the relationship with the department is a good one because it is professional and functional, meaning uh, we are a, a separate agency. Folks should not think of the Commonwealth Attorney's Office and the police department as being hand in hand. The police department responds on the front line to incidents. Sometimes they're able to arrest offenders, and then we decide whether and how to prosecute that person. Sometimes the police department uh, or people who work in the department are at the heart of investigations, like in the Marcus Peters incident. And I like to try to remind folks that there are a couple of ways that we could handle allegations of misconduct on the part of police officers. We could send everything out. And what you would get back really is a function of the quality of the office that agreed to take the case up. We cannot refer these matters to the U.S. Uh, to the Attorney General's office, and you can only refer them to the U.S. Attorney's office if there is a federal nexus, right? So my view is that there's probably no office in the state better situated than ours to investigate allegations of violence. And that's typically what they are on the part of Richmond police. The employees in the police department know I'm going to give it a straight look. And if I think it's a if it's a ball, I'm going to call it a ball. If it's a strike, I'm going to call it a strike. And if that means I have to prosecute police officers, I will, as I have. But it also means that I won't unfairly characterize or prosecute police officers to maintain or build credibility or standing in the community. And that seems to work. Most people, I think, in the city know that I'm going to call a spade a spade, so to speak. And if the police officers have dropped the ball, broken the law, done something they shouldn't have done, I am going to hold them accountable for it. Do you feel because we're seeing this nationally, we're seeing it in the state in different jurisdictions, and that, that seems to be um, uh, a place where there's a lot of coverage. We just talked, uh, before we started this interview, how hard it is for something like this report to get coverage, but how easy it is for something that may be considered a lightning rod in the community to get coverage. What have you seen change kind of nationally with you know, different uh, district attorneys, different Commonwealth attorneys, um, having more of an adversarial relationship with law enforcement. Is that something that you feel is just kind of a time of, you know, these things come in cyclical things? Or is there some particular reason that you see that this is happening kind of more across the landscape? I, I think to say it's cyclical might be giving DAs or, or prosecutors too much credit. Frankly, I think the media coverage has forced prosecutors to at least appear to be in a more adversarial posture with police departments. In other words, when when there's footage that shows shots to the back of an offender that did not appear to pose an imminent threat to a police officer, the DA with jurisdiction is pretty hard pressed not to come out and say, uh, we're investigating this as a potential homicide, right? And, and 
so I, I really think the short answer to your question is media coverage is forcing prosecutors to take steps toward accountability for the police departments that they work with. And, that, and let me bring this back to the report because there is a section of the report that I found in a way fascinating, but it's definitely new. And when I say new in the last four years, five years, the growth of social media. Hmm. So what, we, what we've seen, and I think what Mike is alluding to, is that everybody has a camera on their phone. Everyone has something in which if there is an actor that has acted poorly, can especially law enforcement or otherwise, you probably have a video of it somewhere. Mm-hmm. This report has a section on the the rising kind of climate in social media, and it's not necessarily a positive one. It says that social media, especially amongst our young people, are leading to things not being let go. Like when maybe maybe ten years ago, you had an argument with someone, a dust up uh, at a picnic or something like that, and they just let it go. Well, now they're on Instagram, they're on Snapchat, they're on, you know, they're, they're keeping this going. So it almost forces a young person when they see each other. Oh, well, I got to I got to right. I got to do something or else. Right, right, right. Yes. And I mean, so that's one of the things that we absolutely have to consider. The reality is um, and I think to a degree this was alluded to earlier with one of the questions. Um, there is a difference in the way that we have to really consider what's necessary in terms of uh, pursuing public safety from 10 years ago versus you know, 15 years ago, excuse me, versus now. Uh, social media absolutely plays a role in relationship to that. And I, 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 w- I guess I kind of want to interject because I feel like it's necessary to be clear that when we look at social media specifically in terms of how it has an impact, um, what we are not saying is that because the platform exists, then there's, you know, for all the purposes, this underlying basis for why the uh, um, certain activities may occur or certain offenses may occur, particularly violent uh, responses may occur. But what we're interested in more so is the reality that if we know that this uh, mode of communication, as you were alluding to just a moment ago, has definitely changed from what it was when I was a young you know, person uh, to where if I did have uh, uh, an issue with someone who lived on the other side of town, it the time frame that it took for me to be able to get any kind of a response in terms terms of what may have been said or what may be, you know, uh, suggested in terms of uh, information or uh, ideas or suggestions come from the other side, so to speak, towards uh, instigating this notion of us fighting or, or doing worse. Um, it's changed to such a point where now it's instantaneous. And because it's instantaneous, um, the response for all relative purposes matches that in a way that wouldn't have happened again you know when when i think any of us for that matter in this room were young people um because it can match it at that same rate uh we have to be clear that this for all relative purposes is something that we need to um pay much more attention to at least in terms of uh how young people are communicating and not so much just young people i think how people are communicating in general in terms of what allows us to create these platforms to um, uplift uh, whether it's our own perspective and idea trying to represent a particular neighborhood or whether it's our own um, 
interest excuse me in terms of trying to make sure that someone doesn't know me posturing i'll, I'll use it in that mm-hmm. context me posturing in a particular way um that it, it serves the purpose of all of those things and that we just need to be clear that you know as a medium how it's being used so that we can for all other purposes find other means that are um uh, reasonable in terms of intervention as well and in, in that regard excuse me as well the voice you are hearing is Iman Shabazz. He is with the Richmond Commonwealth's Attorney's Office. I am also joined by Mike Herring, who is the Commonwealth Attorney of the City of Richmond. This is the Cheats Movement on WRIR, and we're going to wrap this up, and we're going to get you out of here. I've got a couple of listener questions that I definitely want to, to get to. i got to thank all the listeners for sending questions, whether it was via Facebook or Twitter. And I will do this as fast as possible, almost like a lightning round, even though some of these questions are fairly loaded. Um what are some of the best practices you're seeing across the country or across the yeah across the country that you feel would have a significant impact on Richmond? I think one of the better practices that is at least being considered in some states and cities is trauma-informed, if not prosecution, then certainly justice. So remember, we know the most about an offender at sentencing, yet decisions about guilt and, and punishment are often made earlier upstream. So stated differently, in a felony context, we know loads through pre-sentence reports. But day in and day out in your general district courts, decisions are made in a matter of minutes. And I don't mean to discount the deliberation on the part of the judges, but it is what it is. It would be nice if we could make decisions on prosecution, maybe even charging, from a trauma-informed backdrop there is a i guess an initiative and something you may have commented on forgive me this is great for our listeners though there is a kind of a movement for uh to kind of remove the suspension of driver's license for offenders that can't afford to pay court fees is that something that you've weighed into or had any thoughts about lots of thoughts unfortunately lately because you know there's a, a ruling out of an appellate court that has deemed the practice of let's say administrative suspension unconstitutional just for sake of time that's what we'll say and so we've had to think about it a whole lot i don't know frankly that suspending the license does very much to change the triggers for behavior it 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 probably marginalizes people more than it re-incentivizes them I'm going to ask you about uh, one of the more popular questions that we get, and I'm sure you hear this all the time. Uh, obviously, there is an effort across the country in certain uh, certain states and certain communities to kind of decriminalize the use of marijuana. Um, I don't know if that's something that the office yeah. has weighed in on, but I definitely want to ask because that is by far the most popular question I got from, from the listeners. Something tells me we'll do a rebroadcast on this alone. So here we go. <laughs> Uh, we, don't, we don't have time this time. Yeah, we, yeah, do, we don't. The, yeah, we yeah. don't. We'll have you back. We'll be glad to have you back. Yeah, we. It is something that I've thought about a lot, and the office is has an active posture with regard to marijuana cases. In that we bend over backward to avoid convicting people for possession of marijuana. the The, the challenge for me is that Virginia's treatment of alcohol. And marijuana is a bit hypocritical. Now, the state happens to enjoy a very profitable monopoly in the sale of alcohol, and it doesn't in marijuana. But the number of cases that we see, violent cases, 
that involve an intoxicated person as opposed to someone who's under the influence of marijuana, the, the ratio is just startling. In other words, many more people come through the criminal justice system drunk than stoned. The, the challenge for me as, a, as an elected policymaker is, is one of messaging. I don't want to do anything that suggests to a young person that consumption of alcohol is a good idea and not to be hypocritical. I drink, but it's a bad idea. Similarly, uh, ingestion of marijuana is a bad idea. The ingestion of any tobacco product into your lungs is a bad idea. So to suggest to young people through discussions of decriminalization that maybe it's a good idea to smoke anything, much less marijuana, to me is a regressive policy statement. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that there is a huge racial component, right? And the difference, you correct me if I'm wrong, you guys are the office, but when you say the people that would come through basically intoxicated on alcohol, even committed violent crimes, as opposed to the number of people that may have been um, incarcerated due to marijuana possession, I, I just have to assume by default that there's a giant racial gap, or not even giant, but there is a racial gap which leads to some of the numbers in this report about the numbers of people of color, brown people, African-Americans, Latinos, that, especially in the city, are either arrested or incarcerated based on the total population of the community. Yep, that's right. Much higher incidence of crime and substance abuse involving uh, defendants of color. Much greater incidence of ABC stores in brown and poor neighborhoods, obviously. And that's a different discussion for another day. Sure. I will leave you on this one because uh, we really, really do appreciate your time, both Iman and Mike. Thank you for doing this. One of the, the I think, one of the cooler questions I got, and I, and I definitely want to shout out Nicole for asking it. But in general, the question is, how do you view second chances? as someone that is responsible for prosecuting people that made possibly a, a wrong decision, or they made a decision which in turn they have to be punished for. Do you have a philosophy on second chances and, and how you relate to it and anything happening in your life that makes you think of it that way? Oh yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I come from a, a good, strong single parent household, but it was single parent because of alcohol dysfunction. Second chance though is an exercise in balance. and in order for the system to be workable and credible, there has to be some degree of equilibrium between accountability and restoration or rehabilitation. And second chance really captures the notion of rehabilitation or restoration. The accountability side of that equation is a lot harder, right? And we talked about this earlier, the challenge for me as a prosecutor is making sure that the outcomes appropriately address the gravity of the harm done but do no more harm than necessary to the person who was the original offender. And that's something called harm reduction. So to me, I'm much more interested in harm reduction for offenders than I am the oversimplification sometimes of second chance. We're going to have to end it there. Mike Herring, Commonwealth Attorney, thank you so much for your time. Thank Iman you. Iman Shabazz, Thanks. thank you so much for your time. The report is called Beyond Containment. Uh, you should be able to find it online, I'm assuming, at this point or no? At this point, um, I'd have to give uh, subsequent information for folks to be able to reach out. We'd be happy to be able to share it with them if they contact our office. We're going to have to leave it there. This is the Cheats Movement on WRIR. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll be back right after this.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Cheats Movement on WRIR. Gigi Broadway is here. You already know. And I am your host, Cheats. You may have noticed. You may not have noticed. I, I think you noticed. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been asking our amazing listeners to give us constant feedback on the show, email the show, tell us what you think, what can get better, what can get worse, and your feedback has been amazing. It has. So we want to thank you for that, and we want to encourage you to keep doing it. One of the things that you said that you wanted was more Ask the Cheats movement. (laughs) So... If you're not familiar, a couple episodes back, we had, I want to say, like three or four Ask the Cheats Movement questions from people that called in, introduced themselves, and asked a question. We have our good friend, Big Rich, is calling in, and he has a question, so let's cut to that. What's going on, Chiefs Movement? This is Big Rich, uh, nighttime news representative, Booze and Grooves, Comics and Brews, and uh, I got a question for y'all. Do you think Mad Skills really deserves a day in his honor? Recently awarded by all right gg broadway you heard the question i did richmond hip-hop legend hip-hop pioneer 90s wordsmith slash turned dj slash turned just about mr everything by coastal from la to richmond mm-hmm. but always rva zone mad skills he was awarded a day by Mayor LeVar Stoney. It is there. It's already done. It was actually Mad Skills Day in the city of Richmond. My question to you is: It was the big richest question to us. Does Mad Skills deserve a day? What's your thoughts? Good question. Good question. Really good question. Big Rich always has. Big Rich always brings it out. He brings does. out the good stuff. Always. Um. Yeah. Man, Skills. What I what I like about Skills is he him as well as Lonnie they really you know are our connection to the culture they kind of represent us and they you know Skills has done a great job you know he who who has who can find something bad to say about Skills you know what I mean I feel like he represents (laughs) us represents us well and who better you know so first of all the short answer to this question is absolutely Right. Skills definitely deserves all the recognition he can get as being a pioneer. Not to mention that he is an educator now. He taught a class at the University of Richmond. Exactly. Uh, Me and DJ Mentos, shout out DJ Mentos, went to that class when they brought in Hank Shockley from the Bomb Squad. It was uh, just a dope experience. So short answer is absolutely. I think the question that is even more interesting for us is who else? could we name that deserves a day you mentioned Lonnie mm-hmm. my mind instantly goes to the the, the late Clef Clef Dallas may rest in peace right right um, just those levels of pioneer and there's so many Richmond pioneers that have done so much that you know in, in times where we weren't even thinking like you and I particularly weren't thinking about uh, hip hop and uh, so those cats definitely paved the way there's so many cats that uh, I feel like in Richmond right now that's really trying to pick up the ball and, and run with the things that they've done. Um, so, uh, yeah, short answer is yes on my end, Gigi Broadway. It's a yeah. It's a yes on your end. Big Rich, that's the question. But I will ask all of our listeners, who else do you think would be deserving of recognition? You mentioned Lonnie B. There was an effort 
from Councilman Jones to name a, a community center in honor of Lonnie B. Mm-hmm. There's uh, obviously Skills Day. Clef, now there's a little bit, um, there's there's several murals of Richmond artists that were put up by by different artists all over the city now. But Clef was the first mural yeah. project that I was aware of that put um, a Richmond artist's face on the side of the building down in Chaco Bottom. Clef is down there. You know who needs a mural? Who? Kelly, you- man. Kelly, Kelly. Kelly Lemon? I think my girl Kelly needs a mural, man. Yo, there you go. There's so there's so many people that have played such a role. Uh, and you know, it's just the evolution to going back to skills. So the last thing on this is just the evolution of skills as career. So I think it was a throwback Thursday the other day or, or, or a l- little while ago. Skills posted a picture of when he was working in the VCU parking deck. Right. And he was, you know, he was rhyming. He was traveling. He was doing all that. But, I mean, he still had to do what he had to do. Those were um, the days, man. And, and, and for him to come all that way to be, obviously, a ghostwriting legend, DJing on big international tours, and I said teaching a class at the University of Richmond, uh, I'm going to go with yes. I'm going to go well-deserved. And not only that, but he carries himself so well, you know. On top of all the accolades, everything he's done, He's just a good guy, good energy, and he just carries it well. So shout out to Big Rich for the call. Everybody else, like we said, if you want to contact the Cheats Movement, the email is thecheatsmovement at gmail.com. Ask your question. We'll probably call you and ask you to read it for us (laughs) and get you on the air. So thanks, Big Rich. We'll be back right after this. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our show for Tuesday, March 19th. Gigi Broadway, what do you got going on for the rest of the week? Just working. Matter of fact, shout out to everybody who works at Owens and Minor, man. I just, uh, you know, started there at the beginning of the year, and they've been treating your girl pretty good. Mm, gotta say, Owens and Minor's not a sponsor. Probably not gonna, uh... <laughs> not gonna, nah, you, know, you know what? I'm gonna give you this one. Owens and Minor sponsors the show if you want one of these days. Hey, I'm telling But uh, Gigi Broadway gave a big shout-out. Uh, shout-out to, uh, all, like, I think there's five Virginia schools in the NCAA basketball tournament that starts. Uh, technically, it starts tonight, but nobody counts the first four games. So it really starts Thursday. But VCU is set up to play, I want to say they play, like, Central Florida first game. But if they win, they're set up to take on the number one team in the country, Duke Blue Devils, which is an exciting game for anyone that knows me because I grew up a Duke fan and I went to VCU. So I'm going to actually say go Rams. Okay. You know what I mean? Uh, Shout out my wife's school UVA is uh, the number one seed in the tournament as well. So it's March Madness. We didn't really talk about it, but, you know, we got to get into March Madness. We should have played Future, man. March done, Madness is my favorite. We should have done song. some type of bracket, but we'll we'll figure it out. You know what, Gigi Broadway? You can post. I'll post my bracket on my Facebook page and on my Instagram. You can post your bracket on on that as well, and we'll have listeners post their brackets. How about that? That's a good idea. All right. Please keep the comments coming. Keep the feedback coming. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, we see you. See it. it.